Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unscripted Equity Curiosity. Uh, this is season two, episode 15. My name is Ami Joseph. I'm the sector ad for technology at Hedgeye. And with me, as always, are Andrew Friedman, sector head for communications at Hedgeye, and Felix Wang, sector head for China at Hedgeye. And today, um, we have a special guest. And our guest's name is Paul Glencher. Um, for those who don't know Paul, Paul Glencher, he is a five foot 11, 175 pound right hand pitcher based out of <laughs> Vienna. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, that's a different Paul Glencher. Hold on a second. It's not the baseball player, it's the telecom analyst. That's right. Paul Glencher has been a telecom analyst for decades. <laughs> And, and he has he has experience going to um to at the U.S. Court of Appeals going all the way back to the 1980s. Oh and no, it goes was, it goes back. It goes back. What's that? It goes all the way back to my good friend Alexander Graham Bell. He was there yeah. when yeah. Alexander Graham Bell invented it all, and he has been. He started with Potomac Research, which was the uh, predecessor company to. Um, that Hedgeye acquired and brought in to be part of Hedgeye. Um, he was there for seven years and he's already been at Hedgeye for almost seven years. So you can all put a timestamp there and, um, and you can factor it. Uh, but the point about, and so Paul is a, a Hedgeye's sector uh, specialist for telecommunications, media, technology, policy, and he focuses on um areas of regulatory concern and antitrust and other areas that are related to uh, lawmakers and legal uh, ramifications and, and intellectual property dis, uh, debates and discussions and litigations um, in the TMT space. And so naturally, pretty much everything that Paul does um, is relevant for everything that uh, that I do and for and for Andrew and for Felix, which is why we were really um, excited to have him on today. Um, the other thing that you should know about Paul is that he is chief zinger man of the morning call. So hopefully we'll get a couple of real good dad jokes in there, knee slappers that'll help us through uh, the next few minutes of content. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's a uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I um, mean, thanks for having me on today. It's good to join you. And uh, and the other thing too that I would say is um, a lot of what I I try to bring to this is a, is a legal background. Member of the antitrust bar of the ABA and telecommunications bar, and former uh, judicial law clerk in the court of U.S. Court of Appeals and such. Because so much of what I focus on gets past the regulatory. Um, process and moves into the courts and uh, whether it's the the appellate court or the supreme court even district court trials uh, antitrust cases in particular you know we uh we focus on the ones we think that that really count and bring that perspective as well that's right thank you for adding that and that's so relevant i want to explain to our listeners why like how i put this all into context as an analyst my focus is it, is the company's product being adopted by customers 
Are they enjoying it? Do they want more of it? Is the company innovating to open up new markets and segmentation, et cetera, et cetera? And how is that all going to translate to quarterly earnings? When does it lead to this being a buy or a short or whatever it is? And kind of like these are linear thoughts over a multi-duration, multi-quarter period of time, let's say it amounts to about three, four years, right? Whereas the stuff that Paul focuses on is the stuff with tail risk in both directions, right? It's the stuff that maybe like when the first, you know, when the first headline or press release hits, you know, there's a wobble and then, you know, kind of like there's this ongoing thing that's happening and there's going to be at some point an outcome that is going to sway the stocks in a big way in one direction or the other. And that's why I feel very lucky to have Paul on the Hedgeye team. And I listen to him every morning on the morning call uh, to try to learn from him and I read his notes and so on and so forth. And I encourage you guys to do the same uh, and to sign up for Paul's uh, vertical as well. So, okay. So now with that, um, Paul, there's always something hot for me and you to talk about. Last time I think you and I sat down was about 5G, was about Qualcomm. You were so insightful, so brilliant. Um, but today I want to talk about the chip spill because um, you've been following it very closely. And um, and I am not as, ex- at least from what I know, and maybe I'm just like not educated enough in this yet. Um, I'm not that excited about it. So I want to understand, first of all, just give me like, let's level set for everybody, basics, right? It's like 50 something billion, uh, supposed to be voted on really soon. Are there any other steps after it gets passed or if it does get passed? And what is the goal? Like, what's the goal of the bill? Um, who is it targeted towards? Can can it include like, is it only for like the intels of the world who are literally like headquartered and registered and whatever and pay taxes in the United States? Or could it be like a Samsung who's, you know, headquartered in South Korea and Seoul, South Korea, but like might build like six fabs in the United States over the next two decades. So how does this all going to work out and how long, how, like, what is the time horizon for disbursement of this cash to the extent that it it gets passed and so on and so forth. And I know I'm throwing you a whole bunch of mess of questions all in one. Um, take it from how you ever want to take it. Sure, sure. Um, thanks, Ami. Yeah, um, looks like they'll get this thing passed. You know, Congress goes into recess next week, so they'd like to get it done um, by the end of the week. The Senate could move it today, maybe tomorrow, but I think it's going to move. They, they voted closure, which means debate, no filibuster, that's done. And they can get to a final vote on the merits and move it. And then the House will probably take the Senate bill, pass it, and get it to President Biden by the end of the week. It'll become law. I think it's highly likely it gets done. Um, and what it does is it sets aside uh, roughly $52 billion in subsidies to to chip makers, uh, you know, basically to, to incent um, domestic production. You know, we used to produce roughly 30% of chips, you know, back in the 90s. Um, we're not talking about designing chips. We were great on designing chips, you know, the Qualcomm's and the AMD's and the NVIDIA's of the world. But, you know, making the chips, the physical fabrication of chips um, has been outsourced. And we produce maybe 12% going down to 10%. And the concern and the, the COVID-driven supply constraints and problems, et cetera, that, you know, spilled over into automobiles and Sony Playstations and everything else is just, it got to the point where, you know, the political momentum was there to reverse that and say, 
as a matter of economic as well as national security, because a lot of these chips go into military equipment, et cetera, that we need to be able to, to have a, a guaranteed supply and not depend on, you know, primarily Asia, uh, Taiwan, Singapore, you know, to produce the chips that we need. The other thing that's going on is we don't at all in the United States manufacture any of the most advanced chips. You know, the really, really small, uh, you know, pushing toward three nanometers and such, um, driven by the, the kinds of technology that ASML provides, um, you know, to make smaller, more powerful chips. And so we don't do any of that. So the thinking is we got to fix that. And so the political momentum was right to, to move this. And it's $52 billion in subsidies for um, to support chip manufacturing. Uh, I think that obviously Intel, Samsung can get some of that money, Taiwan Semi as well, that the, if they make commitments to build them domestically, and they have. Um, and, you know, I think the equipment guys will benefit uh, simply because, you know, their equipment will go into those, those uh, facilities. The other thing that they added to it, and this was part of the process of, you know, getting what was an incredibly large, unwieldy piece of legislation dealing with various, um, you know, ways that we can upgrade our technology and do R&D to compete long-term against China is, um, you know, they, they, they slimmed it down. They couldn't get all that, uh, you know, worked out legislatively. It was too unwieldy a process. So it became principally a chips-focused bill, and they were able to slip into it a, a, a an investment tax credit as well, 25% um, that would you know, further incent um, investments in uh, in chip making uh, domestically. So that's another uh, sort of gift to the industry that got slipped into the bill. And they're talking about other things too, beyond chips. Hopefully by the end of the year, they're talking about uh, R&D expensing. That's something that, uh, you know, under the Trump tax cuts, they were going to uh, basically, you know, phase out upfront 100% R&D investment um expensing and uh it's now five years but they may delay that now and so that you can continue to get 100 percent up front at least for another year or so so there's more coming um that's even broader than chips but it, it benefit them as well so that's the driver for this whole thing the money would presumably start flowing relatively soon i don't know there's a set timetable um because you know, obviously, there's going to be provisions and guarantees and commitments that have to be made. And the other thing that's involved is, um, you know, states um, and and some public-private partnerships trying to work uh, with the chip foundries to uh, to come up with, uh, you know, their their proposals and their their plans for uh, for uh, establishing a a good investment foundation and, and and for spending the money. I mean, the thinking, according to the Commerce Department, is this could be. You know, we could get seven, 10, you know, fat plants domestically out of all of this, maybe more. Um, Intel's made huge commitments. Um, like I said, Samsung and Taiwan Semi as well are making commitments uh, for plants in Arizona and in Texas and in Ohio. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a big lift. It's a big commitment, um, but, but it's something that they feel is critical as a matter of economic and national security. Awesome. And answered uh, it, but yeah, that's a great start. Um, so okay, so 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 by, by definition, on the at the end there, you sort of answered the part about like would Samsung and TSMC both be able to benefit from uh, this bill if they manufacture, if they decide to set up plants in the United States, right? Like that's right. something that okay, so that's awesome. And is it a fifty-two bill? Is this money 
like use it or lose it starts October 1st of 2022, expires September 30th of, of 2023. And by then 52 billion is either spent or goodbye and they have to vote on whether or not it continues or- I think it's, it spends, no, it's not like what we're doing in reconciliation in the budget bills. This is, it's separate stand, standalone legislation. I think it spends over a five-year period, basically. Okay. So it's, it. it's not like that. Got it. Okay. That's cool. And then, um, in, so the goals- do I, so I want to understand correctly. So the goals on part one are let's get more supply or more continuity of supply for our supply chains where we saw shortages during COVID. Um, so that's goal one. And I would say like, geez, already we're, I guess there's debate today about um, whether or not the um, supply chain bottlenecks will um, endure over the next six quarters, or even if they are loosening already. So um, uh, parts of the supply chain are already loosening too tremendously. I, I don't know. So that 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 side of it, I think, is going to get tested, maybe short term, but maybe long term, it still makes sense. And then the second part is about getting leading edge manufacturing um, made here, um, which is interesting. And was a pride point that forever U.S. was like, you know, thanks to Intel was like number one in the space. But like what we're going to get is not Intel or another U.S. company like becoming number one in process tech. We're just going to get Samsung and TSMC making fabs here as opposed to making them, building them locally in their own geographies where they normally build. So um, so that's kind of like that's how we'll have access to to leading edge, but we'll have it onshore. Um, is that kind of like am I understanding that correctly? Like that's sort of like how this will will transition and translate. Yeah, I think that that's that's basically right. Um, you know, and and you know, it raises a sort of a longer term question, not just related to chips, right? I mean, macroeconomically, you know, this idea that you know increasingly, you know, in technology, um, in other areas, that you know, globalization is sort of going to get reversed, right? It used to be, hey, we go wherever it's cheapest to make this stuff. And now it's like with national security and economic security and supply chain, you know, uh, sensitivities and all this, you know, that's that's not the overriding objective. And Ami, in our discussions uh, about some of this, I know you've raised questions about, you know, how much can we really bridge the gap as a matter of, you know, cost productivity uh, by, you know, Bringing chip production here. I mean, and and it's a it's been a great question. It's been really insightful because you know, we probably can't close the gap with the cost of production in Taiwan and elsewhere. Um, you know, we're going to try, but there's a, a whole lot of reasons why and perhaps we, we really can't. So all what we can do is make it you know just more attractive as best we can economically to to move as much production here as we can. Yeah. Well, actually, let me just clarify that for a second. So, so uh, cost it has two functions here. One is just straight cost, you know, math, you know, an Excel spreadsheet, and the other is technology cost. What I meant was that um, technology cost leadership is the same thing as saying like, like, like you're at the leading edge. You've got the formula for the super leading edge that TSMC has, that Samsung appears to have in logic, that Intel used to have and is lost or has lost, it could be that Intel will leapfrog or ca- catch those two again and, and, and once again assert itself to be dominant. That'll be based on, if they do, I think that'll just be like the new CEO, like pushing and pulling and grabbing and you know forcing and figuring and whatever it is and banging his head against the stucco wall and whatever else he has to do to get 
that ship moving again. And we could, it, Intel could be like, you know, like the way Microsoft was when Satya came in. It could be that kind of that kind of call option. Um, but we'll see. Like he has to go. It's not, it's unclear whether or not he can he can actually do that. The chips could help because maybe some you know maybe to some degree they can they can get the funding and then lever it up and go above that. So there's so, so there's some benefits there that could stimulate uh, more activity. Of course, Intel does have empty facilities uh, that are unused already. So maybe this will just help them uh, in the United States and Oregon and other places, um, Ohio. And maybe this will just help them outfit those. So that's also like kind of like a running start for Intel. Um, but from a from a cost of cost of the chip perspective, that's not I from like just like a bottom line cost. There's no cost advantage. You take give me the cheapest place in the world to manage, like where labor is like the absolute cheapest. Tell me where that is somewhere in Africa, probably. It's not it doesn't make it move the needle versus, let's say, doing it in New York City. Because the because the um, more than ninety nine percent of the costs are non labor uh, in the Fed, so it's really not it's not about that. Um, so anyway, just wanted to make sure I clarify that. But 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 yes, on the leading edge front, that we're trying to get back there. The only thing is, and I, I wonder, Paul, like how you think about this is that in the semiconductor process, um, like one of the reasons we were okay allowing. Like part of why these things all went offshore, like the fab stuff was, was the fact that different geographies would incentivize the, that like shift, right? So Japan gave tons of tax credits and boosts and whatever back in like the 60s, 70s, 80s for companies to build semiconductor manufacturing. And then in the 90s, that was uh, Taiwan and Korea were incentivizing. So like, uh, and, and into the 2000s. So, um, so that is, and China now, right, is obviously, but like, but like one of the reasons we were okay letting that stuff go was that there are parts of the semiconductor process that are very dirty, like very toxic, like like wafer clean is like all these really toxic chemicals going, like splashing against the wafer to clean it and and remove, strip all the extra stuff. Um, do you think there'll be a, a problem bringing some of that back in house or am I like making too much of like, that's, that's really not the focus right now. Well, you know, it's, it's a good question. I haven't seen a lot of emphasis on environmental impacts and that kind of thing. And there's probably no question that, you know, when you start breaking on a new fab and such that there could be environmental assessments and things that are involved with all that. But, um, you know, to the extent they have those issues and they may not, you know, just be, you know, federal type issues. It could be state issues as well. Um, I'm sure that they're going to have to address that. But, you know, the feeling was that this was just an economic imperative. And I think those are some of the details that that, um, you know, didn't get a lot of play here. You know, when people were complaining that they couldn't get new washing machines and new cars and, you know, gaming consoles and everything else. Um, politically, that just became the overwhelming message that had to be addressed. But I, I think that, you know, the, you know, the big, big story here is just, you know, uh, China's made it clear that, you know, they want to become dominant uh, as a global technology leader. And, you know, you have all these background concerns about uh, Chinese, uh, you know, espionage and spying and technology theft and everything else going on as well. And, you know, um, the feeling was they're going to do what it takes to help their industry, you know, grow and flourish in chip making. And, uh, you know, we just don't have any choice. 
particularly if we're so dependent on Taiwan and you know China's constantly threatening uh, to do something uh, in Taiwan and you know it just it just all of that has come together to make that the paramount concern. So I'm sure there's going to be a number of other um, you know, um, economic and, and social policy issues involved with what they do. Um, you know, there's issues about using, making sure, you know, do you, should you use union labor? If you can use union labor, um, what other conditions can we put on it? These sort of things can, can get, um, can, can sort of get involved in the process. But, you know, the big picture is, uh, you know, we've, we've embarked down this, this road. We feel we have to do it. And I think a lot of the questions that you're talking about there could, you know, could come up, but you know, the the, the big picture is the the feeling on a bipartisan basis that you know we have to do this. Got it. And you you've highlighted um, that the um, the biggest beneficiaries of all this are the um, the equipment suppliers, which I completely agree with. You know, the ASMLs, the plaid materials, the lamps, et cetera, of the world, the KLAs. Um, and uh, those companies, uh, and, and so obviously, as you have this like competing supply chains being built up, right? The, the, the primary existing one, which today we'll say flows through Taiwan, Korea, and then parts of Japan, and then the back end in China, um, and then building up a competing supply chain that will also flow through the United States or an extra supply chain that will flow through the United States. Definitely with that kind of thing, you know, you're, because of the nationalistic and, and strategic and, and everything else involved, you're less concerned about like perfect efficiency. You're more like you're willing to carry a little bit of utilization issues. You're willing to carry excess inventory because you need to, there's a sort of strategic reason to like line up two different um, supply chains or build a, a, a backup to a supply chain. I guess to what extent do you think politicians are being motivated underneath by the fear that China could take over Taiwan and um, and then we'd sort of be kind of like with no leverage at all in that moment. I mean, t- t- have you thought about that? Have your discussion about it? Have you, have, do you have thoughts ar- around how that plays into this and, and kind of, you know, please like, you know, just, just any, anything around that would be great. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. Um, you know, there's not a day that doesn't go by that, you know, uh, there's some news about, you know, threats to Taiwan, um, you know, Chinese planes, you know, flying through airspace that that, that is menacing to Taiwan. Um, you know, Nancy Pelosi talks about going to Taiwan. China says, don't you dare. I mean, it's, um, you know, how what's the reality of that threat? You know, probably not. I don't think that the government perceives it as imminent, but you know, that those kinds of things, you know, can, um, can spiral very quickly. And, and that's why, you know, the backstory on the, on the, the war in Ukraine is, you know, are we sending a sufficient signal to China that, you know, you better look at what's happening to Russia. You don't want that to happen to you. So, I mean, the story is just constant and it all relates back to, you know, what happens, um, with that kind of a threat. And, and realistically, if, if something did happen and, you know, you had, uh, Taiwan's manufacturing facilities for chips and such. I mean, there would be all sorts of export controls to keep equipment from going in to those facilities uh, for future generations of chip making, export controls and such from equipment from here or from Europe. Um, you know, that that's what would happen. You know, would they really do that? 
you know, I, I don't know that the threat is imminent, but it's constantly on people's minds. And it's definitely an issue that was talked about constantly in the debate leading up to the passage of this CHIPS bill. So uh, it, it's, it's a, you know, it's a major factor in driving this whole, uh, this whole legislative effort. Yeah. I mean, like mm-hmm. if, like if, for example, ASML's super duper leading edge today is mainly shipping to Taiwan and a little bit to, to Korea and a little bit to the United States, if they can balance that, you know, a little bit better um, and, and even better if Samsung's actually building the fabs here in the United States. So like there's a double act there of balance. It just means like on the day of, there are some political um, options on the table as opposed to like, we don't have any options because if we like get, fight back or suggest fighting back or help them fight back or whatever it is, or enforce embargo or whatever it is on, on that area, then we don't have iPhones, iPads, cloud computing and, and anything that the military and the government run on. Oh, that's so, right. Yes. T- yeah. You're right. TSMC, you know, it's making all the next generation iPhone chips and, you know, they've, they've got an exclusive, I think, supply arrangement on that for, with Apple. But, you know, interestingly, you, you raise a good point. Uh, you know, there's talk of restricting um, having AS because U.S. components go into ASML equipment that then gets, you know, um, exported from there. And uh, and in fact, up there near our office in Connecticut, uh, ASML has a, a manufacturing facility um, and and, you know, equipment goes out. And the thinking was it's not just the cutting edge chips, but but even previous generations of their, you know, um, deep ultraviolet lithography machines that they might restrict that going to China and, um, you know, of larger, you know, um, line widths and such. Um, and that, you know, put a bit of hit on the company, uh, the thinking that, you know, we can make it even harder for them to export to China. So, um, you know, every time you hear news about export restrictions and such, um, you know, it rattles these guys. So, you know, the big picture is the the more, sort of geopolitically stable the supply chain becomes, then perhaps that has some ripple effects in terms of the back and forth that happens with these companies whenever there's a, you know, a near term, you know, breakout of some uh, geopolitical crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, like you could see, like, I, I know this is oversimplified thinking, but you could see how China's like, okay, we can't get leading edge UV from ASML now they're going to restrict us from DUV. We really want our semiconductor industry to take off. It's the key to growth for us for the next decade, or one of the key keys to growth. Um, so if we just buy Taiwan, essentially, you know, with blood, with you know, buy with blood. I mean, uh, if we just buy with buy Taiwan, suddenly we have access to. They can't stop Taiwan from getting DUV. Uh, now our semiconductor industry will be perfect and will grow, led by led by TSMC and, and others uh, there. Uh, and the U.S. can't stop us because they can't stop TSMC uh, Taiwan. But now, like you said, there's going to be some some options, or at least they're trying to create some options. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the first part of our conversation focused on semiconductors and the chips bill with Hedgeye's very own Paul Glencher. From here, we pivot to discussing the Department of Justice going after big tech and also the sentiment on Capitol Hill against China today. And both Andrew Friedman and Felix Wang step in with questions and opinions and that'll be in the second half of our episode, our interview with Paul Glencher. Thanks for tuning in. 
This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the contents. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at Hedgeye.com slash Terms of Service.